0: listeners, this is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of... Record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. This is Lamar Lane, Director, National Capital Region. This podcast is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the member comes first. The plan was to take a few years to build and fortify before taking on the growers. But events intruded on September 7, 1965, when an AWOC local of Filipino farm workers staged a walkout against Delino grape growers over dismal wages. The local, led by Larry Aitlong, turned to the NFWA for support. There was a history of ill will between Filipino and Mexican workers, and Chavez doubted his untested union was ready for a strike but there was considerable pressure from his supporters to join the AWOC action. At issue were demands for wage increase from $1. twenty-five to $1. forty an hour and recognition of AWOC and the NFWA. At a meeting on September 20th, Chavez put the question to a vote of the rank-and-file, who voted unanimously to join the struggle. The walkout soon involved 5,000 workers on agricultural lands covering more than 400 square miles. As it was soon a Mexican-American strike, the NFWA and Long's AWAC chapter merged the following year into the United Farm Workers Organization Committee, UFWOC, with Chavez as its leader. The distance between farms created problems for the strikers, but because grace required harvesting at just the right time, strikes strategically timed could inflict maximum damage. Also, grapes require the attention of semi-skilled workers 10 months out of the year. The field hands tended to be more experienced, less migratory, and less replaceable. The growers did not want to work out any agreement. They used tractors to kick up dust at picketers, shot over their heads, and even once crop-dusted them. They also used the local courts for injunctions, even to the point of not being able to shout Explanaged for Strike, Chavez appealed for help from Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committees, SNCC, and the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, as well as the Berkeley Free Speech Movement. Chavez, a devout Catholic, also benefited from the consistent interest of the Church, specifically its philosophy of liberation theology the belief that priests and church members had a duty to assist the poor in their struggle for economical and social justice. Chavez had the help and guidance of a local priest, Father Donald MacDonald, devoured books about and by Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. He believed the struggle was not about a mere labor dispute but civil rights, so should include Gandhi-like campaigns such as marches, consumer boycotts, and even fasting. He also shared with Chavez portions of the transcript of the Lafayette Committee hearings held in Los Angeles in the 1930s, which revealed the underhanded techniques the growers had used to ravage earlier farm workers' movements. Ruther of the United Auto Workers and Robert Kennedy, now a U.S. senator from New York were so impressed by Chavez's nonviolent labor actions that they went to California, the growers were watching with curiosity and outrage. They could not understand how a local movement of scruffy migrants had managed to enlist national political figures in their crusade. The growers still thought of Chavez as that dumb Mex. Ruther at a rally said, you are making history here announcing support of the AFL-CIO, we will march here together, we will fight here together, and we will win here together. Kennedy, who impaneled a hearing of the Senate Subcommittee on Migratory Labor While in Town, in order to hear local testimony vowed that if America could dream of putting a man on the moon, it could manage to improve the lives of California farm workers. Organized labor and the alliance with the Democratic Party was about to face a critical test. It would arrive in the form of a tragedy in foreign policy. Supremely loyal to President Johnson was George Meany, leader of the AFL-CIO. He had been personally devastated by the death of President Kennedy and had been deeply touched when President Johnson made it a point to reach out to him for help in guiding the reforms of the Great Society. He was also pleased with Johnson. In 1964, Vice President's Choice Hubert Humphrey, who possessed one of the most stellar pro-labor voting records in Congress, Johnson's escalation of the war was a conflict for organized labor. Even if the war drained resources from Johnson's domestic programs, military-related spending boosted domestic manufacturing and created jobs. No one had forgotten that it had been the production buildup of the Second World War that had really ended the Great Depression, and a similar positive impact had been seen during the Korean War. Billions poured into war industries meant millions of jobs. For organized labor, the war was far away and jobs were a reality. Meany, who was Johnson's leading defender among U.S. Union's had wanted to believe that the nation could afford both the war and the Great Society, a view that was tested when the White House cited escalating war costs in opposing a hike in the minimum wage from $1. twenty-five to $1. sixty per hour. Slowly at first there came a loosening of tongues. Elements within the labor movement were among the first to voice concern that the war in Vietnam had been hastily entered into and was a mistake. On February 24, 1965, Local 1199 of the Drug and Hospital Employees Union, which had A long history of challenging racial discrimination and other injustices sent a telegram to President Johnson and New York Senator Kennedy and Jacob Javits urging a peaceful settlement of a war no one can win. Other nations joined, and over the next couple of months, the Negro American Labor Council, the Missouri Teamsters District, 65 of the AFL-CIO, and members of the UAW, tell the president we don't like to be lied to. Emil Mosey, secretary-treasurer of the United Auto Workers, urged a student anti-war rally. We were lied to by Ike on the U-2 over the Soviet Union, lied to by the the Kennedy administration on the Bay of Pigs, and now LBJ says we are in Vietnam to defend democracy. Students began to speak out on March 24, 1965, the first anti-war teach-in sponsored by SDS was held at the University of Michigan at Ann Harbor, involving 3,000 students and faculty. Forty other colleges copied the format, and on May 15th, a national teach-in was held over television and radio with colleges in 35 states participating. Worse for the Johnson administration were the large public anti-war rallies such as As the SDS led March on Washington to end the war on April 17th, that brought 15,000 students, faculty, veteran civil rights protesters, and clergy to protest outside the White House. On August 6th, in commemoration of the 20th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, 100,000 protesters, including folk singer Joan Baez and A.J. Must be 80-year-old pacifist and labor militant arrived in Washington. Calling themselves the Assembly of Unrepresented People, the group carried a petition calling on Americans of draft age to, to conscientiously refuse to serve in the military and to request a discharge if they were already in uniform. Local 1199's opposition remained steadfast. In November 1965, it purchased an ad in the New York Times demanding a ceasefire in Vietnam, and into the bombing of North Vietnam, and an effort to negotiate a settlement. By early 1966, it was joined by the amalgamated clothing workers of America in condemning a war that, due to college draft deferments, was being fought largely by soldiers drawn from the working class, with blacks a proportionately high percentage. The jungles of Vietnam, it was said, had become a poor man's graveyard. Anyone who was within labor leadership ranks spoke out on the war risked excommunication at the hands of George Me, who defended the conflict as necessary for the freedom to survive and dismissed protesters as academic do-gooders and apostles of appeasement. The internal debate came fully into the open at a December 1965 AFL-CIO gathering in San Francisco. Speeches in support of the war were heard from Meany Vice President Humphrey and Secretary of State Dean Rusk, who were loudly booed by college students in the balcony. Both sides started yelling, and soon Meany slammed a gavel down, demanding, Will the sergeant-at-arms clear those kooks out of the gallery? Maisie, the UAW's, Outspoken Secretary Treasurer, who had emerged as his union's leading dissident voice on the war, used his turn at the podium to challenge the convention to rethink labor's position. Offering a quick summary of U.S. policy toward Vietnam since the Second World War, he pointed out that America, like earlier French occupiers, was exhibiting a reckless imperialism and insisted that the rampart against communism it had chosen to back in Vietnam was a flawed and corrupt public dictatorship. He demanded the AFL-CIO reverse course at once and come out for peace negotiations. Meaning countered, Maisie insisting that while the French had been a colonial presence, the United States was there as a force of liberation, and that The unhappy conflict would end when communists stopped trying to take over Southeast Asia. This was evidence of the widening gap between organized labor and student activists over Vietnam. It did not help that most of the big trade unions' senior labor executive councils were truly senior white men in their 70s and 80s, many of whom had retired or had been relieved of their day-to-day union duties, yet hung on as esteemed elders. Liberals and intellectuals who felt a sincere connection to the labor movement and labor history could not help but feel alienated, of course. The dynamics also functioned the other way. Older union members, even those who disapproved of the war, could not countenance the more outlandish forms of activism the young people favored, which went so far as to disrespect the president and the country. On March 7, 1966, 150 men and women, mostly Mexican-Americans, but also some black and Anglo-volunteers, along with a handful of nuns and priests, embarked with Cesar Chavez on a 300-mile march from Delano to the state capital in Sacramento. The marchers held up a embroidered silk tapestry of Our Lady of Guadalupe, a traditional defender of the poor, as well American and Mexican flags and a wooden sign with Helgo painted on it and a banner with the Thunderbird, the NFWA's splendidly barbaric coat of arms. The march moved north through the Fertile San Joaquin Valley through vineyards and cotton fields, losing but also gaining people along the way. At every stop, a NFWA member named Luis Valdez read the official resolution. The marchers had written, Our sweat and our blood have fallen on this land to make other men rich. We are poor, we are humble, and our only choice is to strike. We want to be equal with all the working men in the nation. We shall overcome. They arrived in Sacramento on Easter Sunday, with the 57 original marchers being swept up in triumph onto a stage decorated with Mexican and American flags. During the last days of the march, the first growers had given up. On April 7, 1966, the Shenley Corporation, which owned the Debonat Wine Corporation and regularly employed about 450 farm workers, had signed a contract with the NFWA. Whatever the company's reasons, the moment was historic. The first instance of a California grower agreeing to formally recognize a union of field workers farm workers are excluded from virtually all the laws congress has passed to protect industrial workers including the statutes governing collective bargaining and minimum wages the new york times applauded the ability of the california grape strikers to make themselves heard despite this absence of legal safeguards it is attributable to the fervor with which they have fought for emancipation. Chavez took on DiGiorgio Next, a larger corporation that controlled several hundred thousand acres in California and employed as many as 1,500 pickers, founded in the early 20th century by Joseph DiGiorgio, a Sicilian immigrant. The firm had broken farm strikes in 1939, 1947, and 1960. The current president, Robert DiGiorgio, the founder's nephew, was a prominent businessman who sat on the board of the Bank of America. To break the history of strike-breaking, Chavez used a controversial strategy, insisting that the company's available workforce be reduced by sending undocumented Mexican workers home. A more serious complication was that the Teamsters, who had aided the NFWA in defeating shinley by refusing to cross NFWA picket lines, now maneuvered so as to be able to participate in any possible contract resolution with Giorgio, Chavez was furious. Those bastards, he said of the Teamsters, we shook the tree and now they're trying to pick up the fruit. That's how they operate, and if they get away with it this time, we'll never get them off our backs. Just when we get a grower softened up, they'll come in and try to make a deal with him. That's the way they do it, through the bosses. The Teamsters were a business union. The farm workers more akin to a social movement. Jimmy Hoffa, the leader of the Teamsters, it was said, was against getting involved with the fruit pickers. Hoffa had legal problems, and the Western Conference Director, Elnar Mohn, hoped to raise his status in the union by entering into the vineyards. He denied this as to the reason pointing out they had 100,000 members, in various farm-related jobs. Giorgio demanded a union representation election as he felt it was inevitable that a union would come in and thought the Teamsters would be easier to deal with. The Teamsters won easily. Chavez felt the election was rigged and Governor Brown, a state inquiry into the election which substantiated Chavez's claim He ordered a new election. Chavez got support from the AFL-CIO under conditions that the NFWA merged with AWOC. In August 1966, as a result of the merge with AWOC, the NFWA became known as United Farm Workers of California, UFW. That same year, Congress amended the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 to include farm workers, in minimum wage protection. On April 1967, the UFW signed a contract with Giorgio providing for a union shop, a $1.65 per hour minimum wage paid vacations, and an agreement that pickers would receive four hours pay for showing up for work, even if none was available. In July, peace was made between the Teamsters and the UFW. In negotiations with Pirelli, Minadi Vineyards, it was agreed that the UFW would have control of the fields and the Teamsters would represent workers in canneries, process facilities, and warehouses. Chavez's next move was a national boycott on table grapes in order to bring other growers in line. They urged people not to buy grapes from supermarket chains like A&P and Safeway. In 1970, many large growers agreed to recognize the UFW and signed contracts. Walter Reuther, in 1965 recommended peace negotiations be initiated by the United Nations and two years later he supported a halt in the U.S. bombing of North Vietnam. But Reuther's protest of the war was not as loud as other UAW's members and, at Johnson's personal request, appealed for patience to Martin Luther King Jr., who in the spring of 1967 issued an elegant demand for an, an end to the conflict. Victor Reuther, also of the UAW, was more outspoken than his brother. In 1964, he characterized the Cold War view of the world as distorted and oversimplified. At a 1966 UAW gathering, he openly accused Meany and Lovestone of using the AFL-CIO as a cover for CIA covert operations in the Dominican Republic. Could labor criticize the war even as its support of the administration's domestic reforms. The argument made by SDS and others on the left was that organized labor, because it is closely tied to the established political and corporate interests and committed to working with them, was no longer a viable source of meaningful social advocacy. While this might have been true of the major union's faithfulness to the president's Vietnam policy, one could point to the Farm Workers Crusade in California as an example of supportive engagement by the AFL-CIO, the UAW, and other union entities. They had also siphoned off money and support to the civil rights struggle in the South. The era was most televised domestic crisis and a depressing counterpart to the nonviolent civil rights movement in the South. Was the eruption of the lethal race riots in many northern U.S. cities. Harlem and Bedford, Stuyvesant in 1964, the Waltz riots in Los Angeles in August 1965, Chicago and Cleveland in 1966, Newark in 1967. The violence in Watts lasted four days, killed 34 people, and injured 1,000, with damage estimated at $50 million. By 1967, Cincinnati, Buffalo, Boston, Atlanta, Dayton, and even unlikely places such as Waterloo, Iowa, had been struck by similar outbreaks, attended by looting and mass arrests. In late July, the city of Detroit descended into what looked like an urban war zone with National Guard tanks and armored personnel carriers rumbling through the streets. Hello, this is Charlie Parker, treasurer of the NLJSP. This podcast is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. The member is first. Thank you. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.